1: Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Eric Braun about his new book, The Birth of Insight, Meditation, Modern Buddhism, and the Burmese Monk Leti Sayadaw, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2013. This book examines the spread of Burmese Buddhist meditation practices during the 19th and 20th centuries and the social, political, and intellectual historical contexts that gave rise to this development. Braun accomplishes this by focusing on the role that the Burmese monk Ledi Sayadaw played in this movement. Central to the book is the importance of the Abhidhamma in Burmese Buddhist monasticism, and, more specifically, the way in which Ledi Sayadaw spread the study of the Abhidhamma among the laity and used it as the foundation for insight meditation. In contrast to many recent proponents of insight meditation, who emphasize technique at the expense of study and theory, Ledi Sayada saw insight meditation and study of the Abhidhamma as an inseparable pair, with the latter serving as a basis for the former. Braun places Ledi Sayada's approach in the larger context of Buddhist and Burmese theories about meditation. Exploring the different views on the relationships among concentration meditation, Samatha, and uh, stages of meditation absorption, jhanas insight meditation as direct awareness of sensory and mental experience, and insight meditation as discursive thinking informed by Abhidhamic categories. Exploring the cultural milieu of late 19th and early 20th century Burma, Braun demonstrates that Ledi Sayadaw exhibits characteristics that we would regard as traditional, as well as those we might think of as modern. In addition, as opposed to Buddhist reformers who argued that Buddhism was in fact applicable to and accorded with modernity, Ledi Sayadaw flipped this relationship on its head by asserting that modernity, for example Western science, was in agreement with Buddhism. In so doing, he avoided the usual contradictions between Buddhism and modernity, but without apparently compromising the Buddhist worldview in the process. Braun places Ledi Sayadaw's thoughts on these matters in the larger historical context of colonialism. Burma was annexed by the British in the 19th century, and many Burmese believed that Buddhism's final days were nigh. Ledi Sayadaw's theories, then, were in part a response to a new environment in which Buddhist monks were losing their traditional position as educators, and in which the age-old relationship between the Sangha and the state was abruptly terminated. Touching on doctrine, social trends, colonial history, meditation theories, notions of tradition and modernity, and Ledi Sayadaw's legacy in Burma and the West as it does, the birth of insight traces a complicated web of relationships— It ties 21st-century American meditation centers to the place of 12th-century Sri Lankan Abhidhamma exegesis in Burmese monastic curricula, the dismantling of the Burmese throne to Buddhist theories of declension and a proliferation of voices claiming to represent Buddhist orthodoxy, and British colonialism to Ledi Sayedov's theories on the karmic relationship between individual and society. The book will be of particular interest to those working on Buddhist modernism, the relationship between religion and colonialism, the history of Burmese Buddhism, the Abhidhamma and Theravada Buddhism, the relationship between the Sangha and the laity, and Buddhist meditation in theory and practice. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'm with Eric Braun, and we're going to be talking about his new book, The Birth of Insight. Meditation, Modern Buddhism, and the Burmese Monk Ledi Sayadaw, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2013 as part of its Buddhism and Mod- Modernity series. Eric Braun is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Eric Braun, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today.
0: I'm very glad to
1: be here. Thank you. Now, uh, I should mention uh, for listeners that this book won the 2014 Toshihide Numata Book Prize in Buddhism, administered by the Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. And I understand that you were just out in Berkeley last month to accept your prize and give a talk on the book. So uh, congratulations on that.
0: Oh, thank you very much. Uh, Yeah. In fact, this year, I was uh, co-winner along with uh, John Nelson, who wrote an excellent book on Japanese Buddhism called Experimental Buddhism. And it was a real pleasure to go out there and speak about my book and also hear about his work and just generally get to interact with folks. Very gratifying. Mm. So
1: I was wondering if you could uh, begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, where you're from, how you came to the study of Buddhism and or Burma and or religion, um, any important influences in your life, for example, academic advisors who shaped you,
0: Yeah, it's a great question, and always one (laughs) that can be a challenge to answer, when do you begin? Um, Sure. (laughs) You know, for me, uh, I I had, throughout my life, up until my undergraduate uh, studies, which were at the University of Georgia, I had gone to um, Catholic schools. In fact, my high school was an all-male Catholic military school run by Benedictine monks. Wow. Uh, And so you can imagine, um, and as was certainly the case, there was a sort of... Strong emphasis on religion, though it wasn't necessarily a extremely pious sort of atmosphere. It was always in the air, which doesn't necessarily make you uh, inclined towards the study of religion. But for me, it seemed to always bring it to the fore and and sort of have it in my consciousness.
2: Hmm. Uh,
0: And even back then, in, say in high school, not not before that, really. I, uh, for whatever reason, students often ask me why I'm interested, and sometimes I jokingly say, "I don't know, maybe karma," but (laughs) I don't know why. But in high school. I had developed a real interest uh, in Buddhism, uh, specifically, even back then. It sort of fell into abeyance or a kind of, mm. uh, I don't know, a kind of stasis in college. And I, In fact, in college, I was an English major and, and didn't really study... Uh, Buddhism at all, or, or religious studies for that matter. Hmm. Um, but then I, after college, I moved out to San Francisco and I began uh, visiting the San Francisco Zen Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, my interest sort of rekindled. Uh, I began to study Sanskrit uh, mm. and some other languages like Avestan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, ancient language related to Vedic Sanskrit in its oldest forms. And that sort of brought it back. And I ended up Uh, doing a great deal of study of languages, traveling in Asia, throughout much of Asia, in fact, uh, and that sort of uh, sort of fixed it in my mind it's what I wanted to do with my life and so I stopped working for an investment bank and uh, <laughs> writing articles on how to invest your money for retirement And so, <laughs> totally unrelated to religious studies <laughs> I, should, uh, so I, I, I should actually to... ask you about that afterwards but sorry, go on oh yes, yeah. so if anyone is curious about how to, how to prepare for retirement let me know yeah. but a uh, valuable thing to do when you're 24 years old in fact but, yeah uh, I, I did switch uh, to a focus on on Sanskrit literature, actually, generally, and I'm on, on more than Buddhism, in fact, because I was originally interested in the contextual origins of Buddhism, mm. uh, you know, and its interaction with Vedic culture, very late Vedic culture, and um, mm. uh, you know the Upanishads, Chandogya and Brihadaranyaka, and these sort of things. Uh, but once I was at Harvard, which is where I ended up going for my PhD. Uh, I was tremendously, tremendously influenced, well, by a number of folks, but my, I had two advisors, in fact. It, initially, Stephanie Jameson, who's now at UCLA,
2: mm. who
0: was tremendously influential on me in terms of um, uh, the study of language, how to approach the text. And then subsequently, once Stephanie uh, decided to go to UCLA, uh, Janet Giazzo became my advisor and uh, has remains a tremendous influence on me and sort of guided me towards... Uh, an inclination I already had towards uh, the study of Buddhism in more contemporary manifestations. She had no agenda. She didn't necessarily want me to do that. But I sort of felt the possibility, uh, studying under her, of of exploring those interests. And I sort of took mm. off specifically focusing on Burma because Burma uh, is known as a place that they they understand themselves, in fact, as a culture that really specializes, among other things, in meditation. Mm-hmm. And I was quite interested in meditation, and that sort of drew me there. Mm. Me, me, uh, med- the actual sort of technical aspects of
1: meditation, or more meditation as like uh, as a cultural phenomenon, or sort of a as like a- in,
0: in fact both. That's a great question because it it does cover many different arenas, so to speak. And and it was sort of the whole package for me that interested me. They do celebrate themselves in a sense, and I think justifiably so in many senses, as technical experts in what makes meditation tick, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and how, you know, what are are its inner workings, from the Theravada perspective, of course. Uh, But then at the same time, there's a tremendous um, uh, sort of, oh, I guess you'd say, uh, just general popular interest in meditation. By no means does that mean that everyone meditates in Burma. I think scholars listening to this podcast would be well aware of that, but, uh, uh, you know, most Buddhists... Don't meditate, and that's true in Burma as well.
2: But that said,
0: relatively speaking, there is an astounding uh, interest in actual practice, and even more broadly, even among those who don't practice, there's just a sort of general level of interest that's, um, that's mm-hmm. pretty intense. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all those things sort of drew me
1: there. I see. So it was really the interest in uh, Buddhist meditation, and then along with that, um, a developing interest in sort of. Uh, more modern or contemporary Buddhism that led you to focus on Burma specifically.
0: That's right. I mean, I had always been deeply interested in the polytext, and that was obviously an easy interest to keep as mm-hmm. I as I began to study uh, the Burmese Buddhist culture. Um, but it is kind of interesting because I think often, uh, quite understandably, and it's actually a, a very sensible thing way to go. Let's say people are become deeply interested for both the heart and mind in a particular culture in a mm-hmm. particular Buddhist uh, sort of tradition and, and that draws them to then find a project that will work within that interest right for me it was in fact in some sense the reverse mm-hmm. I already had a kind of interest in meditation and in Pali literature and then I kind of came to Burma through that right uh, and but yeah you know it served me well
1: yeah Okay. So, so, well, thanks for that. So moving on to the book itself, in the introduction, you um, explicitly state that this is not a biography of Leti Sayadaw, but rather an examination of the growth of meditation and development of modern Buddhism that is undertaken. And uh, But you, you do this through using the life of Leti Sayadaw as a sort of uh, lens through which to view this, or m- more specifically, you look at Leti Sayadaw's role in this growth and development. Um, right. And as such, you don't cover every single event in Lady Sayadaw's life, but rather focus on those facets of his life that are directly relevant to the larger topics. Uh, that being said, could you begin us? Uh, can you uh, begin by just telling our listeners who Lady Sayedah was? Um, I should sure. be- I, I should just mention he was born in 1846 and died in 1923.
0: That's right. That's right. And you're quite right. I was I was keen to frame the book in a certain way so that so that a reader would not assume that I was going to give a kind of comprehensive view of his life. Mm -hmm. He had an incredibly rich and varied life. And so I do, in fact, give, I think, um, a a pretty clear portrait of the sort of major milestones of his life in in pretty much all arenas. Mm. But you're you're right, it is focusing, spending its time really specifically on his role in the emergence of mass meditation in Mm -hmm. Burma. Um, but that said, I, I do kind of the backbone of the book, or the spine of it, runs along the story of his life as well. So, in the introduction, along with uh, you know, sort of clearing the way in terms of theoretical theoretical matters and um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and certain definitional issues, I I give the the basic story of his birth and his his early schooling up until the time he kind of uh takes off at the capital of Mandalay to begin serious study as a, as a young, fully ordained monk, uh, you know, around 20 years of age. Mm. Uh, and then the subsequent chapters sort of follow his life chronologically, even as they uh, chart uh, the sort of different facets of his contributions towards the emergence of mass meditation. Mm-hmm. And that was a bit of a trick, you know, in terms of the mechanics of how you create a book. How do you tell the story of his life? chronologically to some degree to have that kind of interesting narrative propelling the reader forward mm-hmm. at the same time that you deal with facets of his life that don't necessarily follow chronologically. Mm, yeah. Luckily, this, to, to a significant degree, it was pretty easy to jibe those two things. Yeah. Um, but it is true in terms of his life. He was a remarkable student in what was when he was born and up through the first half of his life, really royal Burma, traditional Burma, ruled uh, by a Burmese king. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's one of the things that makes his life so interesting, in fact, that his life really straddles this divide. Half of it is in the the pre-colonial era, Mm -hmm. and then half in the colonial period. And his life can be read, in a sense, as a kind of formation in that pre-colonial period that then is applied to the problems of the colonial moment. Uh, and so when you look at his life, you see his birth, his traditional formation, his attendance at monasteries in the royal capital, well, his his life mostly in one particular royal monastery called uh, Danjiao. Uh, then his movement into the forest, the arrival of the British, and then a public career that mm-hmm. ends, that sees him traveling all over uh, the country of Burma. Now, by the way, as I think most people probably know, officially called Myanmar. Yeah. Um, he travels all around. He becomes a, pi- a public figure of tremendous uh, notoriety mm-hmm. uh, and, and and in many ways devotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he you know, sort of ends his career uh, uh, as this kind of famous monastic figure, mm. famous for his. But also famous for his popularization of practice and his popularization of study among the laity. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yeah. And so and
1: and and of course, I should mention, too, that he wasn't born into it. He sounds like he comes from very humble, uh, very humble background. Um,
0: That's true, yes. I mean, he's from a family of traditional uh, rice farmers of, in Upper Burma, about 60 miles roughly, a town called Saint Pien, about yeah, roughly 60 miles from the what was in the royal capital of Mandalay. Um, and, you know, one interesting thing about that is uh, the monkhood, as it does to a significant degree in many Theravada countries and elsewhere in the world today, represented a, a kind of means of mobility. You know, that, that it wasn't so so incredibly unusual for a monk to come out of a small village and rise to prominence, because there were means, really a, a kind of meritocratic system where one could mm. uh, make one's way to prominence, even from fairly obscure beginnings, mm-hmm. um, though it's certainly true as well that prominent families, prominent uh, people could would would certainly have a way, uh, let's say, a, a kind of ready means to, to become well-known if they could also prove their abilities, say, scholastically or right. some other way. But, but yeah, it was certainly was a means for him, though I should say that it seems quite clear from his biographies and everything we know about him, that that this was not someone who had chosen the monastic life because it was the only means for him to kind of get out into the world. He seems to have been quite, quite um, uh, devoted to his identity as a monk and, and his practice as a monk.
1: So so, so so that leads us um, thanks for that uh, sketch, and that that leads us into the first chapter, uh, which um, well you you give, you give a synopsis of lady uh, Zaida's early years after he left his village right. and headed to Mandalay, the royal capital uh, to gain entrance t- into what was perhaps the most important uh, monastery in Burma at the time. So he arrives in Mandalay at eight, uh, in 1869 at the age of 22 or 23, and he stays for, I guess, about 14 years till uh, 1883, when the b- monastery burned down. Okay. Um, so could you please, um, and also I should mention just the important sort of colonial dates, which was 1852, the British annexed Lower Burma, and then 1886, uh, shortly after he left Mandalay, they... Upper Burma, but could you please describe the type of environment that L- Letty Sayadaw found himself in uh, in the monastery in Mandalay? Uh, for example, what was emphasized in the curriculum, and what was the relationship between this specific monastery in the state, and also just between uh, you know elite monasteries in the state more generally? Sure.
0: Well, in many ways, uh, as a, you know, that chapter is entitled the, the Best of Times and the Worst, because it, as I, I start that chapter by noting that in many ways, uh, traditional Buddhist learning was at its apex.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, under King Mendon, um, who ruled from 1853 uh, to 1878, um, there was tremendous, uh, almost unprecedented in terms of its intensity, patronage of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So sort of kings like kings defined themselves by the patronage of Buddhism, so he was not alone at all. In that role, but but he really took it to uh, an astounding level, and so uh, royally sponsored monasteries, uh, many of them ringing the uh, the, the royal complex, it, it, which is surrounded by a moat in the center of Mandalay. Uh, these were these received a, uh, a great deal of um, well support,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, uh, patronage, what have you. Uh, so when you went there, if you made your way into one, um, you were really. Uh, kind of close to the center of power, not only um, sort of literally geographically, but but figuratively, too, in the sense that there was a great deal of attention being paid to you from the center of political power uh, uh, there in the Capitol. Uh, This meant that... um, the traditional role of a monk uh in this environment was one of of learning Mm -hmm. uh meditation was something that uh you know certainly uh, i mean in some ways we can't know exactly what went on in, say the privacy of of a monk's room but uh, Mm -hmm. it was not uh there wasn't prominence put on meditation as such as a practice let's say Mm. uh, in the capital the way a monk made his name Mm. The way he sort of made his reputation and rose to prominence was on the basis of his scholastic abilities. I see. Uh, certainly, at this time, in the sort of late royal period uh, of Upper Burma that remained free, as you noted in 1852, Bur- uh, the British had taken over the whole of the bottom half of the country. They'd actually taken the sort of tail of Burma, you know, sort of Isthmus of Kra area, mm-hmm. uh, up up to around Moulmein, a little above, in 1824, and then in 1852 the rest of the lower part. Um, so given this uh, the, the, the free folks so to speak in Upper Burma were very aware of the presence of the British and their behavior was certainly attuned to the reality of the British just below them that they mm-hmm. felt extremely threatened by and, and justifiably so as was proved you know if, uh, some decades later mm-hmm. uh, when, when they did take over the whole thing what, what this means is that although in many senses it was a traditional environment in which learning was celebrated and it was quite traditional learning particularly study of the abhidhamma. You know, the mm. philosophical, let's say, abstract theoretical texts that put the Dharma teachings into their most let's say purely um, ultimate form, as they would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the study of that most rarefied and and typically considered most difficult uh, section of the canon was that was the way to truly make yourself uh, a prominent figure, and Lady excelled at that. Mm -hmm. That's going on. But at the same time, because of the awareness of the British uh, just below, there's also great attempts to respond to the kind of pressures and the realities of that by modernization. Mm -hmm. Uh, And while that didn't mean explicit policies necessary to make the monks act in some way more modern. It certainly wasn't something lost on the monks who were near the apex of power. Mm -hmm. And so lady as a figure could see that. Uh, And this seems to uh, have promoted uh, at least the intellectual interest in meditation, along with a use of learning as a means to, um, to respond to the challenges of the British. So Lady was getting a real mix, in other words, where he was sort of celebrated for traditional learning and excelling in that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he clearly sees the need to respond to the challenges of the modern world. He sees court figures doing it and, and even... Uh, he participates to some degree uh, in ways they respond to that to those challenges. I don't want to go on too long, so maybe I'll stop there, but sure, no. if you're curious for more detail, I can certainly...
1: Yeah, no, about. well, some of those things oh, you get into, in, um, we'll talk about in more detail when we uh, lo- look at uh, later parts of the book. Uh, right. uh, I I also wanted you to, uh, or I was, I was also wondering if you could um, discuss the role of the layman, uh, is it, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but, uh, Po Liang or, uh, a minister about 16 years, yeah. Leti's elder. Um, because, uh, so the monastic environment that you just described for us, uh, that was one big influence on Leti's, uh, formative years in Mandalay or after he, he arrived in the capital of Mandalay. But, uh, what was the influence of this, um, minister on Letty's sort of on his worldview and, and, uh, specifically on his view of, uh, sort of western influences
0: right he's he's in fact who i was thinking of when i was uh thinking of examples that could be given of ways they were responding that lady was involved in mm-hmm. his name is pronounced some um, upo line and um he as you say he was a court minister who was sort of put in charge by mindon he was quite close to mindon of of um uh, among other figures in fact but Mindon but being but became. had a um, I'm sorry, say that again? Mindan being the king. Yes, I'm sorry, yeah. Mindan no. being the king. Uh, uh, Poline had this job, along with others, of interacting with the West, of, of making sense out of Western learning. And, and Poline uh, was also known to be extremely learned and, and, and very well versed in, um, in, in Buddhist texts, including the abhidhamma Lady uh, it seems under his own initiative, decided to create or uh, to develop a, and cultivate a relationship with Line and eventually does kind of come under his wing. Mm-hmm. So he'll subsequently say, the way I write is thanks to U Uh And there does seem to be a great influence on his literary style, and, on, and I think also on his knowledge of the Western world. So Line explicitly tried to jibe so to speak, to bring together Western learning um, Mm -hmm. with Buddhist learning. And so, for instance, wrote uh, um, several texts about meditation that sought to make meditation sensible in the modern world, we might say. Mm -hmm. In fact, one text in particular, uh, this text called "The Meditation on the Body, sought to align an Italian anatomy textbook with uh, Buddhist Abhidhamma uh, thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, in a sense, they're made to be to some degree equivalent to one another in terms mm-hmm. of their kind of access to the natural world but then of course in the end the Abhidhamic perspective is sort of celebrated as the ultimate one because it's the one that leads to awakening and freedom. See. So in a way Western learning comes to be through works like that by Upo Line subsumed into the, the Buddhist worldview and this was an example I think Lady was profoundly influenced by when he would then subsequent to this you know some decades later in fact in many of his works Uh, sort of incorporate Western knowledge Mm -hmm. in a fairly glancing way. He wouldn't spend a lot of time doing it, but he would take Western knowledge or he'd use an example from Western culture or technology and he would would use it in the service of proving a Buddhist truth or Mm or showing the kind of comprehensive um, the comprehensive uh, perspective of Buddhist teachings in relationship to this stuff from the West, so mm-hmm. Pohlein was tremendously influential in this regard uh, since he sort of served as the model for how to do this that lady could see through his close interaction with him
1: and and uh, an- uh another thing that you uh g- g- cover in this section is uh lady Saida 's letter on cows um, Could you just? say quickly what the letter on cows was and more importantly, how it reflected uh, Letty's view of karma and the relationship between the individual and the sort of larger society and sort of society as a whole, because this seems to be a theme that this relationship, uh, his views of karma and this, uh, his ideas about this relationship between the individual and the community seem to be a theme that run uh, throughout his writings.
0: Right. Yes. Well, Lady, you know, in some degree, this harks back to what we were talking about a little while ago when we were talking about the, the way this book approaches Lady's life. I try to touch upon all the major aspects, but really focus on the meditation. But, so I mentioned this in the book, and in this instance, in talking about this letter, I, I develop it uh, distinctly, but, but there was a very large component of Lady's life that involved his attempt to kind of morally reform the Burmese people. Mm-hmm. And around this, he wrote a number of what are sometimes called metasadis, kind of loving letters or letters of that admonition uh, on all sorts of matters of moral reform that he was interested in getting lay people behind, mm-hmm. not drinking, not gambling, not using other kinds of intoxicants, uh, and not eating meat, particularly beef.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: by no means was this the only letter, for instance, on not eating beef. But uh, this letter on cows that comes to be published later, but was first actually sort of circulated uh, in, uh, before print had really arrived in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really encouraged, uh, and uh, and as to, I think the word is appropriate, admonished lay people not to uh, partake of of, meat, of animal meat at all if they could help it, but at least of beef, um, because uh, particularly because of a relationship of gratitude towards. Uh, towards animals for what they provide through their plowing of the fields and their kind of work with the farmer. Mm-hmm. So there was an idea behind this karmically that there's this kind of karmic bond, so to speak, between uh, these these farm animals, these laboring animals, and people uh, that needs to be respected, that mm-hmm. uh, and that. To, to eat them to kill them and eat them after they've they 've labored to feed the Burmese people through their through these agricultural activities that produce plants, of course, uh, was just a really gross injustice in a sense, uh, and terrible karma and he extrapolates not just from from those who particularly want to eat meat um, or or those who say to particularly, kill the animal, which mm-hmm. is often a justification. Even now, that gets used for why you can't eat me because you're not the one who killed it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are often, are often ready to say, "Well, you're creating the market for it if you buy it." Well, even back then, Lady would was making that same argument in hmm. this letter, for instance. And his argument was that in the end, what what happens. Uh, from the kind of sum total of these individual behaviors of, of killing animals and buying the meat and eating it is a kind of socio karmic effect mm. um, and so there 's a kind of cultural karma or a communal karma let 's say mm-hmm. uh, that that affects the Burmese people as a whole because of this this kind of general corporate bad behavior mm-hmm. and so he notes that um, he has a, i have it in the book there there 's a kind of there 's a moment in the letter where he says, well, if you're asking why, uh, you know, all these bad things are happening, I'm paraphrasing here, of course, mm-hmm. if you're mm-hmm. asking why all these bad things are happening, and, um, and we're, you know, we've lost control of the country and whatnot, you know, don't blame other people, blame yourselves, mm-hmm. because it, it's because of the way in which we're not following the moral law that would ensure our sort of health and wealth, uh, namely the, the kind of law of karma that uh, needs to be followed. So moral renovation on the individual level becomes also a kind of Uh, it's only sort of uh, a sort of proto-form here, but a kind of almost nationalistic endeavor. Mm -hmm, Because mm -hmm. the more individually uh, moral a person is, the more they're sort of adding to the karmic health of the country or the society as a whole. Mm -hmm. Uh, For Lady, I should say that Lady wasn't necessarily thinking in terms of the nation state. Uh, They didn't have those sort of, that would be kind of anachronistic Mm -hmm. from Lady's perspective, at least initially. But he certainly was thinking of the kind of communal Burmese people uh, and their sort of karmic health. And so all these kind of moral efforts are actually in line with the propulsion towards meditation that he and study as well that he encourages in that they all sort of add to the karmic health of the country, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore could be kind of nationalistic uh, contributions towards Burma's, ultimately Burma's freedom.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it, it seems like he's quite different than from the uh, Young Buddhist Men's Association, for example, that which uh, focused far more on uh, trying to implement policy changes uh, he, it's 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 almost as if um, he's um, putting the responsibility on the Burmese rather than the British uh, when looking, uh, for example, when thinking about when when looking at the British takeover of Burma, for example.
0: Yes, that's right. I mean, in a way, I don't think he he w- w- had any problem. He, he, you know, he doesn't uh, really speak about it, but I don't think he had any issues with. Um with the idea of passing laws that right. were forbidden, say meat eating. Um, but, um, and you know, alcohol had been forbidden under Mendon for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, uh, you know, I don't think it was the case that he felt like that, that was pointless or a right. bad idea, but you're right. He, he put the focus squarely. on uh, I think where he felt the heart of the matter was, yeah. which is the kind of moral quality of the individual.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so, um, l- So uh, getting to the end of the chapter, you you discuss Letty's departure from Mandalay uh, in 883, I believe, uh, Uh and his first serious foray into meditation. Now, um, I'm going to ask you to discuss um, uh, Letty's sort of, uh, his own ideas about meditation um, later on in the interview. But for now, I just wanted to uh, uh, ask you to um, talk about the sort of intellectual and political, con- intellectual, historical and political context in which um, meditation became increasingly important, because um, because, as you mentioned in the book, it wasn't only Letty who was beginning to uh, f- focus increasingly upon meditation.
0: That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, at the time when ledi was living in this monastery called Thanjown, just just sort of bordering uh, the, the royal complex. Uh, he certainly uh, would know about this nascent movement towards meditation that was taking place just a just a handful of miles away in the in the the hills of Sagain, this mm-hmm. this town you know very near just across the Ayawadi River from um, from Mandalay, uh, and well not yeah anyway very very close by. Um, mm-hmm he would have known about this and certainly would have seen that meditation was being through the writings of Upohan and these other people. It was being uh, developed as an intellectual project. Uh, It was receiving much patronage in that regard. It always, I should say, had been an intellectual project, but it kind of was taking on a new sort of emphasis at the court at this time intellectually, Mm -hmm. but also being these monks who were beginning to meditate in the hills of Saga and were being patronized as well. Then at the same time that he sees this sort of response to the scene, to the let's say the the, the what's going on at the time, uh, uh, just in Upper Burma. Um, he also sees the, the subsequent destabilization of the country. Mm. You know, Mindon's reign ended in 1878, and his son Theba took over in a very bloody sort of secession. Uh, and during Theba's fairly short reign, because 1878 to 1885, not really that long, right. the country became more and more unstable. That eventually led to uh, all, well, all sorts of social uh, unrest, including. Um, Uh, a very large fire that burnt down his monastery along with a a large portion of of Mondeley in 1883. and That's really the kind of direct prompt to Lady's departure for the forest, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, All the unrest, which they would have been well aware was sort of being fomented or catalyzed, let's say, um, by the relationship with the British to the south. This this little, it led Lady to the loss of his home, to the loss, actually, of all the kind of intellectual work he'd been doing. It said he lost multiple, multiple manuscripts of notes he had to a book he was writing at the time. Mm. Uh, I think this gave him a very powerful sense. In fact, you can see it in a, in a poem he wrote around this time, where he talks about it being near the end of the sasana, near the end of the era of mm. Buddhism. Um, perhaps somewhat hyperbolically, but you know this kind of sense that things are ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, this seems to have propelled him to take this step as he had seen some monks doing and some intellectual work being done on this step towards meditation. Mm-hmm. So in 1883 he goes back to his hometown. He actually lives there for a while in a monastery before he actually enters into the jungle, but then he does explicitly enter into the forest to begin the explicit practice of meditation. And This is when it really starts for him. It seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, And, you know, it it does seem to be a combination of the kind of uh, observation of the instability of the world, the sense that things are coming to an end, potentially Buddhism itself coming to an end, uh, and a kind of the the kind of model of other people already meditating. He sort of brings this together to take on the meditation himself. I see. So
1: just to clarify, when he moves into the forest, he's moving to a monastery that's been sort of built for him. Uh,
0: Well, uh, I, I, I,
1: um, I mean, he's not he's not a wandering forest
0: monk. Not much. You know, the story is told that he actually goes into the forest with, um, uh, with some, some upasakas, some some, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, some upasakas, some, some lay people, and um, and finds the foot of a tree and says, I'm going to stay here. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like he really is going to be pretty pretty much homeless, but okay. very, in very, very short order. And, you know, he had brought these lay people along with him, so I don't think he was envisioning that he was going to be cutting all ties with, say, his with his, um, you know, his devotees and sure. his lay patrons and whatnot. He very, in quick order, he gets a monastery built and begins to teach and Study once again, even as he combines it with meditation. Mm -hmm. In fact, this is a very good point, because I I stress this in the book, that unlike, say, the wandering forest monks we see in in the Thai forest tradition, Mm -hmm. or in some other traditions, this was, Lady's interest was not to forego intellectual study, for instance, in favor of practice, Mm -hmm. or to take on an utterly homeless life uh, of of peripatetic wandering or whatnot, and in many ways, in the sense uh, he was only going to he was only going to add meditation to what he was already doing. Mm-hmm. But now in this kind of more charged uh, setting of the forest, which of course has deep resonances in Buddhist traditions yeah. for being you know the place of serious work and serious meditative activity and whatnot.
1: Okay, so um, so so moving on a bit. Um, in, in, in your second chapter, you focus on a controversy that erupted around a work that Letty published in 1901 called the uh, Paramata Dipani, And this is a commentary on the Abhidhamata Sangaha, an extremely influential and concise presentation of the Abhidhamma teachings that was written in Sri Lanka sometime between the 10th and the 12th centuries. And uh, I think it was most recently translated into English by uh, uh, R.P. Uh, Vijay Datne and Rupert Gethin. Um, but the question you raise here and the question that I certainly had is, why did anyone besides a small number of scholastic monks even care about a highly technical commentary written in Pali, not in Burmese, that focuses on a work from seven to 900 years prior? Um, now, to answer this question, you address a number of factors, including the rise of popular print culture in Upper Burma in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, Burmese attitudes towards the uh, Abhidhamma from the 7th century on, which is also a very important point in this book, uh, and also the esteem attached to textual learning in Burmese Buddhism, monastic culture more generally. So I was wondering if you could just um, uh, talk about why this work, Did create such a controversy and also about some of those factors, for example, the uh, historical importance um, or the perceived importance among Burmese of the Abhidhamma?
0: Sure. Yeah, I
1: mean, I mean, you already addressed that a little
0: bit earlier, but. Right, right. Well, you, you certainly you're you're hitting the, the kind of the, the thrust of that chapter uh, right on the head there with the, with that question of then why would they care so much? Why would there be controversy around this so much? In some ways. Um, it, it becomes quite clear simply from the fact that the Abhidhamma Sangaha, uh, that text, a uh, 12th century, roughly Sri Lankan text, although it is from Sri Lanka in, Pala, in Pali, from centuries before um, you know this, this moment in Burmese history, mm-hmm. uh, it had remained a um, just, and it remains up to the present day without question, a tremendously important text to the formation of. Um, well, I guess you'd say monastic sensibility and identity, mm-hmm. but certainly in terms of monastic educational formation, it is the text. Uh, say that monks, when they're quite early in their career, say not even fully ordained, say they're in their teens. This is the text you memorize first as your kind of gateway into into your stu- the study of the Dhamma. Mm. So it's it's a foundational work to 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 Abhidhamma study, and of course, as I said earlier, Abhidhamma study understood to be the kind of crowning achievement of, a kind of, of the Buddhist literature uh, as the most important, then this text becomes all the more important as the entry into that, which is the most prestigious uh, section of the canon that there is. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the Burmese respect and, and, and revere all aspects of the canon, mm-hmm. but the Abhidhamma is understood to be sort of... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the kind of primus inter pares, or whatever you know, sort of the the, the the sort of the number one among equals, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you attack if in some sense you're perceived as attacking that text, Mm -hmm. then you, um, which just among some people, a lady was perceived as doing, Mm -hmm. then of course you generate a lot of ire, because not only is the text just flat out revered and respected and used so widely Mm -hmm. in Burmese Buddhism at at his time and even up to the present day, but many monks' um, authority is going to be based upon their understanding of that text. I see. And if their understanding is criticized as faulty, well, you can see the kind of the, the right. kind of um, reaction this might produce. Now, I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but um, <laughs> the, the way into that, you know, with this Abhidhamma matters. But the way into that text, which is a kind of, it's not so much a commentary; it's not a commentary. It's a compendium. It's a kind of distillation of the, of all the books of the Abhidhamma, and and to a significant degree, even some of the teachings of the of the Sutras. Um, in, in roughly in printed version, it can be about 50 pages. So it's really a quite tight little work. So really handy in that regard. But it's so concise that if you want to make sense out of it, you do need a commentary, a kind of explanation of it. And there's one in particular called the Abhidhamata Vibhavini, uh, which is the, is translated by Geth and Um That is is also absolutely foundational to kind of the Burmese sense of their understanding of the Abhidhamata Sangha um uh-huh. And because of that, uh, it, it, they, they were not wrong in saying that Lady was attacking that text, mm-hmm. uh, which he was. So Lady didn't actually attack the Abhidhamma Sanghaha, not at all. Right. But he attacked the commentary on it extensively, and that commentary is sort of the key for most at the time, and even up to the present day, in fact, mm-hmm. that text is the sort of key to understanding, um, sort of opening the door into the Abhidhamma. Uh, and so if you attack that, you're really attacking people's kind of sense of themselves and their kind. Mm-hmm. identity and their prestige and whatnot. And it produced just a giant reaction. Uh, As I say in the chapter, um, you know, his criticisms are not of great substance. Mm -hmm. He wasn't, you know, they're really pretty small. Um, but but nonetheless, uh, he, even if he didn't produce uh, a lot of heat, he produced a tremendous amount of light, uh, so to speak, through this mm-hmm. controversy. And it was tremendously important socio-culturally, I guess we'd say, for Lady, I think, I argue this in the book, mm-hmm. because the the intensity of the reaction, which was most definitely supported by the arrival of print culture. I think taught Lady a lesson that lay people who became very involved in the controversy uh, in a kind of unprecedented way at this moment, it really taught Lady that uh, the lay people were interested in the abhidhamma mm-hmm. were keen to learn it, were able to really master some of its ideas, and that sort of propelled him to begin to teach it to lay people, in fact, uh, even beyond this controversy, once the controversy had sort of died down.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: No, I haven't gotten into everything I think you asked in that question. It's a very rich question, but yeah, but you know that kind of gives you a sense of where the controversy was at
1: sure sure so 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 just to uh clarify i mean people would were involved in this controversy even though they may not have been even even uh people could sort of participate even from the sidelines in this controversy even if they didn't necessarily have the scholastic learning to understand the specific arguments or refutations being made
0: yeah, so maybe you know. Of course, there'd be a spectrum of how much people would engage with the nitty-gritty, say, of the of the te- the technical aspects of like what the arguments actually were. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
0: and so you see a wide range of kind of styles of response. Some are some are very ad hominem. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I, I mentioned in the chapter that one person uh, basically called lady names in print, and one of lady's disciples actually gathered up all the books he could get a hold yeah. of by this guy <laughs> and burnt them. Uh, and there was there was the urging of a number of other book burnings, burning yeah. of ladies' books. These don't seem to have really happened. That one instance seems to be kind of, well, it seems to be, pre, uh, there could have been others, but that's the really well-known one. But yeah. um, many people, for instance, lay people could read, they would, it was, this, this controversy was discussed extensively in the newspapers at the mm-hmm. time. And so people could get a kind of pre-see, so to speak, a kind of just general overview of what's going on. Right. And then there was many public meetings held, and people could kind of – they could have dialogues about what, what is being said and what's mm-hmm. going on there and sort of establish you know, or appoint someone to be their specific responder. Mm-hmm. So in many different ways, in, in these different uh, kind of aspects, people could take part in the controversy. Right. Certainly, tons of books, many books, uh, were were published in response to Lady's uh, critique, uh, and and so there were there were many different things you could read, yeah, uh, to take part.
1: So, so, um, so, and I should mention uh, for listeners that you uh, that you talk, you go into uh, great specificity with regards to you know some actual examples from uh, Lady's work in this chapter, but. Um, we won't get into the sort of detail right here. Uh, <laughs> right, right. And, uh, so, um, so in Chapter 3, you're looking at some of the ways in which Letty attempted to counter what he viewed as the negative effects of uh, the British colonial governance of Burma and the presence of Christian missionaries. Um, now, you've already talked a bit about uh, some of uh, Letty's views of the cause of the deterioration of Buddhism in Burma and how he tended to... Uh, look more to individual conduct as the solution rather than sort of larger policy changes. Um, now, why would you, and, and you've also addressed the importance of Abhidhamma um, in, uh, Bur, in sort of Burma more generally, but why was Abhidhamma so important in Letty's fight against colonialism and uh, in preserving adherence to Buddhist belief and practice?
0: Well, there's a, there's a number of reasons, you know, fairly overdetermined. Uh, one one aspect that that um, I don't think I really touched on extensively, but uh, certainly comes out in some of the earlier chapters as well, is that as the quintessence, so to speak, of, of Buddhist teachings, the Abhidhamma is also the most fragile. Mm-hmm. So, as as in all forms of Buddhism. Um, in the Theravada, Buddhism is something that's understood to itself be subject to impermanence in terms of its knowledge of it in the world. Of course, Mm -hmm. the Dharma is just the way the world is at all times. But um, typically, it's understood classically as the the dispensation of the Buddhist teachings can last 5,000 years, Mm -hmm. but might not necessarily last that long if people act badly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, or, you know, are immoral who eat beef, who take intoxicants, who gamble, whatever. So, one reason to focus on the Abhidhamma is that it is the sort of front-line defense against the degeneration of of Buddhism and of the Buddhist tradition because in this 5,000 year span of time, it has been stipulated it is in the commentaries by Buddhaghosa and other authors, that The disappearance of the Buddha, Buddhism will happen in stages. Mm. And in terms of the texts, the first thing to go will be the Abhidharma because it is the most rarefied and sort of precious of the teachings, the most abstruse. And of those teachings, the most uh, that is that is to say, the Abhidharma, the most rarefied. And abstruse is the Patana, the conditional relations that forms the seventh book of the Abhidhamma. Mm-hmm. So that will be the first book to go. Mm. Um, so the, the Abhidhamma as a whole is the first thing to go, and even within it, the, the, there's a specific book. This would lead to a sense then that if you can protect the Abhidhamma, you can protect Buddhism as a whole, because it is the sort of first thing to go. If you can hold on to that, you've held onto the whole thing, so to uh, and so that that leads towards a tendency to encourage study of the abhidhamma, um not even necessarily though that this was certainly encouraged for intellectual understanding, but simply because if you have it in your mind, mm-hmm. you're kind of you're preserving it and you're mm-hmm. protecting it, and you're thereby keeping Buddhism around, so to speak, uh, to a significant degree. correlative correlative with this though is the sense certainly that because these are the most precious and rarefied teachings they're also the ones that give the most accurate uh, description of the nature of reality and therefore if mastered are most conducive towards a kind of liberative understanding of the nature of the world. And so it, in, a, in a culture which has celebrated the Abhidhamma and, and done extensive work uh, on uh, learning and teaching and understanding the world through Abhidhamma uh, modes of analysis, already exemplified way back by lion in Lady's Life, mm-hmm. then to, to not only encourage people to preserve Buddhism by learning it, But but it would well it would make sense too, and it's like to encourage people to use that learning as the means to analyze reality because it was the most conducive towards uh, awakening, Mm -hmm. uh, in you know whatever stage a person could reach. And so, for these general reasons, uh, I'm not sure this covers your question entirely. Those would be reasons he certainly would celebrate Abhidhamma, and he did.
1: Yeah. No, 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 that does. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention uh, is, is that you also discussed the, the way in which Letty's preaching differed from previous styles. Um, yeah. And I wanted to ask how innovative uh, this was on his part, or was he part of a larger trend? Um, I mean, it sounded to me, I mean, you didn't explicitly say this, but my impression was it sounded like there was a shift from emotional engagement uh, with a sermon born of the idea that one is accumulating merit simply by hearing a sort of um you know a monotonous sermon in poly that one can, might not be able even be able to understand and the difference between that type of emotional engagement and the type of enge- emotional engagement resulting from a more passionate and lively performance on the part of the preacher
0: i think that's true in a way i i mean i don't know that i, th- I think one would want to be careful that i suspect because of course these kind this kind of preaching still certainly takes place so mm. it's you know, it's changed somewhat. That if it was, say, a, uh, one of these kind of traditional, what, what they used to call the fan-up sermons at this right. time, which and, meant that and, the monk held the fan in front of their face to block a view of their face. Right. Um, you know, that sort of that sort of preaching, which might off, might be, if not in poly, anyway, was replete with poly, long poly quotations mm-hmm. and sort of references and whatnot. Um, I think there was profound I think you see this actually in in, in many different Theravada cultures, profound sort of devotional engagement with that Mm -hmm. but as you're quite right, it's a very different sort of emotional engagement so in other words, what I'm trying to say is I don't know that people would find it necessarily monotonous in the sense that they found it boring or just sort of dry or they just sort of had to sit through it to get the karma. They might be really into it and I don't mean Mm -hmm. to suggest that you were necessarily saying it, it was like that, but I just want to make sure people don't don't think that it wasn't probably a very affective experience for people mm, yeah. with the so-called fan up style. Right. But it's true that once that fan was put down and that's what these new monks were called monks of the fan down style. And mm-hmm. lady was most definitely among them and was one of the most, was one of the earliest though, by no means was the just the first full stop. Mm-hmm. He was sort of partaking in a brand new trend that sought a different kind of emotional connection to the audience in which they could see your face. You're talking directly to them. You're, mm-hmm. you're getting Well, you see this often now even in modern uh, Burmese preaching. The monk uh, will engage in this really kind of lively call and response Mm -hmm. where they'll say something and the entire audience booms back, Yes PR or you know, mm. yes monk and, and they're responding and they're going back and forth and it's said that Lady would he was he was really funny, he's cracking jokes, he's mm. making little he's making little pithy poems in Burmese for them to memorize <laughs> so that they make sure they learn the thing. So what this all tends towards is actually an emphasis uh, as well on a, a kind of intellectual understanding. Yeah. Uh, and it's said that Lady you know, I quote this in the book, he gave the Abhidhamma like falling rain. That had never really been preached on in a in a kind of Productive way before, in the sense that they the that, that preaching was done to try to teach lay people Abhidhamma. Uh-huh. That was really quite distinctive of Lady. That he spoke in normal, fairly simple Burmese to try to get people to actually gain some content in Abhidhamma. Uh-huh. and that was really quite unusual.
1: I see. Yeah, essentially.
0: Um, yeah,
1: sort of. Uh, I, I don't know if this is correct. I always imagine it's the difference between listening to like Gregorian chanting in Latin in a cathedral, and maybe you know hearing a sort of Southern Baptist preacher. Um, you know, speak the word or something where, you know, one's a, an engagement with a certain like ritual space or experience and maybe one's a bit more engagement with a particular person. I don't know.
0: But um I, I see what you mean. Yeah, there is a much more of a populist bent to it. Though it would almost be like Lady were translating Gregorian chant into more normal words and then telling them what the Gregorian chant meant. Mm-hmm. That would be in some ways. But you're quite right. Yeah, yeah, it's much more of a kind of engagement with the audience.
1: So, um the uh, in chapter four the you focus on a work by Letty called The Summary of the Ultimates written in 1903 and first printed the following year. Uh, now this is in fact a poem uh, right. and this was, per, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this might have actually been its most influential work um, Could you pre- briefly describe the work and what it's um, and more so than its content maybe, uh, can you describe what it's supposed to do or convey Never.
0: Right. Well, it's a poem of um, just, oh, now I'm... Uh, well, roughly like around 600 verses in Burmese. Quite simple Burmese in the sense of grammatic structure of the poem itself. That's meant to actually just give you full-on a, basically a, a kind of translation of uh, the Abhidhammatasangaha, that 12th century Sri Lankan Pali text mm-hmm. that we were talking about before that was the focus of the second chapter on that controversy. So it's just meant to basically be a Burmese version of that, it turns out it's not. But that's <laughs> that's what Lady explicitly says it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's just a translation from Polly into Burmese, so that so that normal folk can under- can memorize it and understand it
1: so and 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 you say that this summary this work this poem of uh whatever it is 600 690 verses reorients uh, right, yeah. re- re- the abhidhamma to lay concerns and more specifically that it helps the lay person understand his or her role within the cosmos and thus how to act within this life within the cosmos so how does it achieve this and um and how does it make the abhidhamma any more relevant to the laity
0: Well, um, it does it in a number of ways. In subtle ways, it shifts. I I sort of engage this through fairly close textual analysis. Mm -hmm. Uh, it shifts the emphasis what onto what might be the kind of metaphysical, let's say, concerns of lay people. It's not that the poem says, oh, you know, when you're having a fight with your spouse, or when your kids won't listen to you. It's nothing like that, where yeah. it's quite that folksy or, or specific to people's lives. But, right. for instance, there's a, there's a moment in the cosmology where, if you compare them, because the Abhidu does give you an extremely brief, uh, just kind of quick rundown of cosmology, uh, the, the different levels of existence. Well it's really, it, it amounts to just like a, a, like four stanzas that that basically break down the world into these different levels, right? Well, in ladies, it gets expanded to many different levels with actual measurements of the distance between the different worlds. Because I, one argument I make is because for lay people, you know, they, the understanding themselves within this kind of cosmological framework, this Buddhist cosmological view, mm-hmm. um, that was tremendously important to their understanding of their lives because much was oriented around an economy of merit in which you were, you were we're aiming towards, uh, you know, affecting your movement in that cosmos. Hopefully, mm. up and not down, right towards <laughs> the hells. Right, and and then I note uh, uh, an interesting shift that takes place. That in the in the Abhidhamma Sangaha, very basic rundown of this cosmos, uh, the human realm is just mentioned where it falls. You know, basically on the a kind of razor's edge between heaven and hell. You know, you've mm-hmm. got the heavens, you've got human you know, animals and whatnot, and then you, you you enter into the hells. But Lady reorients it so that the human realm is actually mentioned last as, a, in some sense, almost a culmination of the cosmological scheme, hmm. not because he's saying it's best to be human of any other thing in any kind of grand, total, or complete sense. Definitely not. It's all part of samsara and whatnot. But what he's doing is he's drawing attention for the reader to their place as the human, uh, as, uh, as a kind of kind of draws attention back to them by ending the verse, uh, the verses on the cosmos with them, and, and so this is one way he does it. At the same time, uh, he writes an auto commentary that goes along with this poem that specifically addresses uh, morality and practice and whatnot in terms that include lay people. So the so the Abhidhamma Sangaha tended to to define say. Um, uh, well, there's a moment where it talks about the the, um, the requisites of a monk uh, and, you know, the, the necessities of a monk to live a life as a monk, you know, the robes and the bowl and whatnot, the razor and water strainer and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it makes no mention of lay life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lady, on the other hand, reorients that and, and discusses life in general, both for lay people and for monks, as a way to kind of include them. So to speak, in the in the concerns of the text, mm-hmm. there's many way. There's many instances of this kind of like subtle shift. Uh, and, and then I might just say that, as I noted, it's a it's a quite simple text,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: so it um it uh it, it was easy for people to memorize and learn and kind of incorporate and recite. And so to that degree, it made itself much more approachable, I guess you'd say, and sort of uh, uh, um, feasible to study for lay people.
1: Sure. So you're um, now the penultimate chapter or the I guess the, uh, the chapter before the conclusion is where you sort of address uh, Letty's um, efforts to promote meditation and his views of uh, meditation more fully. And um, you begin by noting that Burma witnessed the spread of Buddhist study and meditation uh, practice among the laity far earlier than other parts of Southeast Asia or Sri Lanka. Uh, And you also point out that Letty's emphasis on meditation was in line with his belief that the way to save Buddhism was through individual cultivation. Um, One of the primary themes in this chapter, indeed Letty's thought as you present it, is the relationship between uh, study and practice, so I guess more specifically you're here the study of the abhidhamma, the sort of Buddhist metaphysics and uh, meditation. So what right. is the relationship between um, study or knowledge on the one hand and then uh, meditation on the other and um, how did he through his social organizing, how did he promote this among the laity?
0: Right. Well, you know, I think, of course, Lady maintains this sort of triumvirate of paryati, patipati, and pativeda, so study of the text, practice, and then realization, respectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly not that he breaks those down, but I think there was a much greater tendency than, say, you see here in the States, uh, um, to see study as a kind of natural um, starting point for self-cultivation that Mm -hmm. would lead naturally to, uh, that would segue right into, uh, practice. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't such a sharp division between the two. And so in many ways, like lady, lady remarks, in fact, at the end of that, uh, that poem, we were just talking about that if you study this poem properly, you can use it as the basis to surely get awakening in this very life. And that Mm -hmm. seems to be the first use of that expression. Uh, and so study, study was sort of formulated as a kind of um, natural basis for practice,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: and you see in Lady's uh, articulation of what practice is, that it's, it's profoundly scholastic, one might even say, in, mm-hmm. in terms – you know, unlike the way I think often – At least, kind of regular people with an interest in meditation, say here in the West, envision it. You know, if you if you if you have that kind of interest, you go and you buy a book like How to Meditate or whatever, Mm -hmm. and it's really about the technique of meditation. And maybe there's a little theory in it, but it's really about the technique. Uh, you'd be at a loss if you really sought such a text by Lady. In fact, what you find is when you even read a book that's about meditation, like there's he has a book called the Anapanasati about breath meditation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It you read it and you're like, well this this just sounds like a like a philosophical textbook on like the kind of metaphysical mechanics of meditation, not how you actually meditate. Yeah. But those <laughs> those cannot be separated so easily in lady's view because in a sense your knowledge of the practice is to a significant degree, your understanding of its kind of metaphysical underpinnings and its sort of metaphysical formulation and, uh-huh. and what, what have you. So so there was a very organic kind of, um, sort of connection between the two uh, that, that allows for one to lead directly to the other.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Um, kind of reminds me of George Dreyfus' uh, argument about um, the importance of having like a coherent soteriology in order to sort of
0: motivate people towards practice. But anyway... Um, well you know you're right there's a kind of a tension sometimes you see crop up I think in all in many different forms of Buddhism and certainly in Theravada between the monks who claim you've got to have some serious study before you begin to practice versus those who say no you don't need any study at all you'll just figure it out and maybe you'll get a little bit as you go along uh, and Lady definitely fell in the uh, latter camp <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and some of his disciples certainly did as well
1: yeah. well um, one last thing I wanted to uh, address in the chapter on I mean there's a lot that we can't cover here due to time but one thing i did want to talk about is um is uh you discuss the way um yeah you you discuss the sort of difference of um between insight meditation as discursive thinking and insight meditation as simple awareness of for example tactile sensations or one's breath um i think many people with a familiar familiarity with modern presentations of buddhist meditation um, sort of people who might have read some of the books that, you know, you were just sort of the, you know, Buddhism, uh, the kind of introduction to meditation type of books that you were just referencing, right. um, people familiar those sorts of presentations of Buddhist meditation think of insight meditation as, I think, mainly the latter, just a sort of bare awareness type of stuff, and right. um, and That's sometimes right. as intentionally excluding discursive thinking, or at least consciously Um, or at least avoiding consciously directed discursive thinking. Um, Here, you sort of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you suggest that Letty's uh, approach was actually sort of a combining of the two.
2: Mm,
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think that would be fair to say. I mean, in the sense that I think actually a number of scholars lately have been beginning to push back against a kind of... um, uh, a, a sense of mindfulness is to simply bear attention. Of course, that's a profoundly influential term really coined by Jnana Ponika, uh, uh, Tara, you Tara know, in his book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation in the 50s. Mm-hmm. But it sort of leads to this, let's say, John Kabat-Zinn kind of senses of mindfulness as a kind of non-judgmental, uh, non-discursive um, just sort of pure awareness Mm -hmm. without any kind of content as you say but you know I think scholars are recognizing that when you begin to to look at what the definitions are of sati of mindfulness in in, in, say the early Buddhist texts and in later commentarial literature and then you also look at how it's understood to function um, of course sati or smriti is related to the idea of memory and there seems to be a sense uh, in which it incorporates a kind of knowledge that's, in some sense, not discursive, but uh, a kind of, well, a kind of function of, of, of memory that's present in that moment of awareness. Bhikkhu Bodhi has a very good article in uh, and a issue last year for, for, of Contemporary Buddhism about this. Um, mm. Rupert Geffen's done some work on this as well. And, and in fact, I think they're trying to push back to, towards a richer sense of what mindfulness was in earlier literature that I think Lady shares. I see. Uh, that for him the idea that you would just go in and just be kind of blankly aware of everything going on around you mm-hmm. maybe blank is not a very fair term but let's say self-consciously non-elaborative and non-discursive would be kind of fruitless unless you have some some kind of deep-seated sense of these operative dharmic categories that could guide your thinking and, mm-hmm. and bring about that insight. Yeah. So there is a kind of, you're right, there's a kind of combination in the sense that it's not that he necessarily wants people to be sitting around going, oh yeah, I totally see the atomic structure of this plant, you know, in this very discursive way. Yeah. But at the same time, he would want them to have that kind of sense of the ceaseless impermanence of the atomic structure in all things at a yeah. deep seated level that allows it to come through in your observation
1: so we've um, we've taken a lot of your time but as a final question I wanted to ask you if there's something you're working on at the moment um, yeah
0: sure oh yes I mean <laughs> uh, you, you know it never stops right uh, yeah <laughs> um, it, you know and I'm working on a couple of things uh, but I, I am putting a lot of emphasis on a project that actually the, the, the conclusion to that to the book we've been talking about carries forward in just a very brief way, this, the story of mindfulness into the West with mm-hmm. people like Dak Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph sure. Goldstein, but then also some of the developments that have been taking place in Burma since Lady's time up to the present day. Mm-hmm. And so then this current project I'm working on, which is tentatively titled The Great Awakening, um, looks at... Looks at it's how meditation is transforming in the contemporary period, it running parallel, essentially, an analysis between what's going on in, in Burma these mm-hmm. days versus what's going on in the West. Mm-hmm. But, of course, these things are interacting with one another. Yeah. So it, it's sort of observing how, how figures travel back and forth in these global flows and what huh. this means for secularity uh, mm-hmm. And for what what it means that there's been a kind of neurophysicalist turn towards you know brain scans and mm. and uh, and what what Willoughby of uh, you know a neuro, neuroscience researcher at Brown University calls the blobology effect you know this kind of idea about what what are these blobs in the brain uh, is that the truth about what meditation really does so I'm looking at all of this essentially these trans- modern transformations in both East and West Burma and the States in yeah. the modern period it really builds upon this book yeah. And that's the sort of main project I have a I have a focus on right now. All right, yeah.
1: And I should mention for listeners that uh, we didn't have time to cover this, but as you mentioned in the conclusion, you give a very nice and clear synopsis of some of the uh, lineages that came out of Letty Sayadaw, and also some of the parallel uh, Burmese lineages that um, that had sort of very little or no contact with uh, Letty Sayadaw. But many of these are important for, as you mentioned. Uh, um, uh, the development of sort of insight meditation in the West. So um, you'll have to get the book and read that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, well, um, the listeners—that is not—I'm I'm sure you own a copy. Um, well, thank you very <laughs> much for speaking with me today, and uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And that's it for today's new book in Buddhist Studies. See you next time.